Hello and welcome to the first episode in my podcast series. I decided to start with a bang. I've been lucky enough to speak with HG Tudor, a well-known narcissist that some of you may be familiar with and others of you may not have heard of him before, but you certainly won't forget his name and his voice after this episode. It's time to find out about narcissists and online dating. What are the warning signs and what do we need to look out for? Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy. Press. Perfect. I'm so excited and thank you for your time. I've literally followed you for the past, I think it's like four years. I followed okay. you on the first channel and then you went quiet for a while. And then I saw <laughs> that you said, I've got a new channel now. So I followed that and I've not been okay. disappointed. The knowledge um, that you've been giving, I think is like, it's golden, really. It is. It's uh, unrivaled, as I often say. And uh, I'm pleased that it's uh, proven of such help to you. Um, I don't know. I find it interesting. I feel like I am the daughter of a narcissist. I'm not going to go too much into it, obviously, because I know that I, I am going to date men in the future and they kind of do watch the things that I post. So I don't want to give too much away yes. um, because I tend mm-hmm. to attract people um, from the cluster B group. But um, okay. from my experience, I definitely do believe my father is is a narcissist. Yes. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I've kind of been preconditioned. Okay. Um, to attract these men, and I, I I know this sounds really bad, HG, but sometimes it's like I don't know what it is, but narcissists can be very attractive well naturally we have to be otherwise we wouldn't get any victims I so know. I know. We, we have to we have to appeal in order to draw people in as i often explain if i sidled up to a lady in a bar and said hello my name is hg tudor and i'm a narcissistic psychopath how do you fancy being abused she'd probably throw her drink at me scream and run away and therefore I've lost control of that individual. So, of course, I'm well-dressed, I'm good-looking, I smell good, I'm a good conversationist, I'm polite to her, I'm charming, I'm magnetic, I'm interesting, I'm humorous. All those lines go in to draw her in. So she doesn't know what she's dealing with. So, of course, we are attractive in terms, and there's lots of different ways that it's done. Sometimes it's through sheer physical appeal, force of personality, the confidence, even the cockiness that can be exhibited. Some people find appealing the sheer piece of sort of zero fucks approach that some narcissists adopt. Others, it may well be they appear kind and considerate and taking an interest and appear to empathize. Oh, that happened to me too. That must be awful. Let me tell you about my experience. Oh, how did that make you feel? Just cognitive empathy causing those things to be said. So we have to appear as attractive in a multiplicity of ways in order to draw people to us. I'm going to start today by just asking for some background on what is a narcissist? Mm -hmm. Um, How were you diagnosed? Did you know if there's anything different about you? And then I want to talk about dating because I'm 26. And I have used online dating. A lot of my friends have too. But a lot of my friends, even if they haven't used online dating, they do not know what a narcissist is because the word is Mm -hmm. so thrown about nowadays. They don't actually Mm -hmm. know what it is. They don't know what the signs are, what to look out for. They just don't understand the cluster B personality at all. Okay. Okay. So what is a narcissist for those who do not know? Um, the true definition, and how were you diagnosed? Did you know if there was anything different about you as a child growing up? Well, a narcissist is an individual that um, has been diagnosed as having narcissistic personality disorder, which has specific criteria as set out in the uh, diagnostic criteria from the DSM-5. And so it's various things about having a grandiose sense of self-importance, Uh, a belief that the individual is special, uh, a requirement of excessive admiration and so forth. And it's generally the case that if one follows that uh, diagnostic criteria, the individual has to have five of the nine criteria that are set out. Now, that's just a particular way of describing narcissism. And the difficulty with it is that somebody could look at those criteria and think, well, I kind of understand what all of that means, but where does it fit into? 
the way that a person operates and acts and behaves. And a better way of describing the narcissist is an individual that operates in pursuit of the prime aims. And those prime aims are to control people, either directly or indirectly, or through withdrawal. We have to have control over people when they come up on our radar. So a person that has an excessive need for control, an individual that requires fuel. Now, the diagnostic criteria made reference to requires excessive admiration. Now, admiration is a form of fuel, but fuel is basically a response from somebody else that is occasioned by us. So if I insulted you now and you got angry, you've just given me fuel. If I went and punched somebody that caused them to fight back, that would give me fuel. Somebody gives me a birthday cake, that's fuel. Somebody praises the way that I look, that's fuel. And we need that as part of the validation of what we are. We need to acquire character traits, which basically means we take bits of other people and bolt them onto ourselves, but it's done by most narcissists unconsciously. I won't go into that in too much detail at the moment because it'll leave people perhaps a little confused. This is a detailed topic. And we need the residual benefits because we use people. A narcissist unconsciously sees a person as an appliance and not as a person, that they are there to serve a function for the narcissist in terms of to be controlled, to give us fuel, to give us character traits, and to give us residual benefits. So unconsciously, the narcissist regards a person like a television set. You press the button, the TV set comes on. We expect you to respond to what we need and to not threaten our control. So an individual who's a narcissist also is manipulative. And whenever we interact with another person, we are manipulating. And we're either manipulating in a benign way we compliment you, we flatter you, we buy you a gift, we appear to be supportive or compassionate, or we manipulate you in a malign way. We insult you, we triangulate you, we give you a silent treatment, we're physically violent towards you. But when a narcissist is interacting or thinking of interacting with another person, we manipulate. Many of the manipulations people don't actually see because they can be very subtle. A narcissist also, in terms of a hallmark, is an individual who has no emotional empathy whatsoever. Some of our kind can fake it. That's cognitive or false empathy. But we don't actually have any emotional empathy. So we don't actually care. We are incapable of love. We can make it look like we love, but actually we don't. We can appear to be sorry, but we have no genuine contrition. A narcissist is an individual that needs to control people, to draw fuel from them and use them in a particular way. And there are various telltale signs associated with that, various red and black flags. The red ones when you're being seduced, the black ones when you're being abused. But essentially, a narcissist is somebody who has a pathological disorder, which is unchangeable. It is hermetically sealed, and it's a self-defense mechanism. Most narcissists don't realize what they are. Some narcissists, such as I, do know. Now, you ask me, when was I diagnosed? I've always known that I've been different and set apart. I know that I was superior to individuals and elevated. And I realized also that, to put it in simple terms, I got a kick out of doing things to people and seeing how they reacted to it. And if I caused it, it made me essentially feel powerful and important. And that's the need to manipulate people to receive the fuel. I didn't know at the time it was fuel. I've worked that out as I've become older and attributed a label to it to help people understand the concept. So I knew from a relatively early age that I was different. And I also saw the behaviours of my mother, who's a narcissist, and the way that she dealt with people and the way that she controlled people. And I thought to myself, that's power. And I want to see other people respond to me that way. So when I was a young boy, I would see the way that people would kowtow to her, that people were frightened of her, that they'd lick up to her. And it used to entertain me and amuse me. 
that these individuals who thought themselves so special and so important were often turned into these little puppy dogs wagging their tails whenever my mother came by. And I thought I want to be able to have that reaction. And so then- is, is it nature versus nurture then? Because I, I don't know, I have questioned, um, am I a narcissist? Because I was raised for like four years of my childhood by one and I'm a bit traumatized from that experience. Um, so does it go one way or the other? Did well, children of a narcissist, all, you know. All, all people have narcissistic traits, but that doesn't mean you're a narcissist. So you'll have narcissistic traits such as pride and envy yeah. and anger. But ordinarily, they are coated, if you will, in your empathic traits. So they operate in a healthy way. So, for instance, you would take pride in your appearance. So you go to the gym to stay fit and stay thin and you buy nice clothes and makeup and you live in a nice house and you take pride in keeping it clean and tidy and you like to show it off to people but you do all of those things without causing any harm to anybody because that narcissistic trait of pride manifests in a healthy manner because it is held in check by your empathic traits of decency of compassion of honesty and so for instance what you don't do is be a gym rat at the expense of, say, attending your child's school play at Christmas. You would go to the school play and skip the gym that day. You wouldn't insist that everybody else in the family ate what you ate because you're on a strict diet. You wouldn't steal so you could fund your expensive clothing habit or shoplift for makeup and fragrances, etc. Somebody that does those things their narcissistic traits are either stronger than their empathic traits or there are no empathic traits to keep those narcissistic traits in check. Now, where does the narcissist come from? It's a combination of a genetic predisposition, if you like the ingredient, combined with a lack of control environment. Think of that like the oven. So, if you've got the ingredients, the genetic predisposition, but no lack of control environment, you won't get a narcissist. If you've got the environment, but not the, the ingredients, the genetic element, you won't get a narcissist. But if you have that genetic predisposition, which is exposed to a lack of control environment for a sufficient period of time, like ingredients going into a cake mix that goes in the oven, it bakes, and a narcissist is created. Now, there are many people who are the who are who may well be a child of one or more narcissists. There's a good chance they'll have the genetic predisposition, and because they're in an environment with one or more narcissists, they may well have a lack of control environment, which means they may well turn into a narcissist. If they don't, it's because either the genetic predisposition skipped, in the same way that say somebody having red hair. Their parents have got red hair, but they don't because it skips and they're blonde. Or the lack of control environment, they weren't exposed to it for long enough. So it might be, for instance, that although the father's a narcissist, he's away a lot with business and sleeping with other women and cheating on his, behind his wife. So the child never really gets exposed to his behaviours. Or there's, another, there's an intervener, a grandparent or a teacher or something else, so that their influence shields the child from the worst of the lack of control environment. And invariably, those type of individuals are more likely then to become empathic. And also, it tends to cause those individuals to develop an addiction to the narcissist as a consequence of being imprinted with the narcissist's behavior. So they don't become a narcissist themselves, but they end up chasing the storm that is narcissism as an adult, because it feels like home. And they don't realize that's what they're doing. Now, you asked, am I a narcissist? Invariably, the litmus test is, if you ask yourself that question, you're not one. Because most narcissists don't have the awareness. And therefore, they would never, ever question themselves. Because the narcissism doesn't allow them to know. So they don't sit there nursing a scotch late at night and go, hmm. I wonder if I'm a narcissist. That just doesn't happen. 
And an aware narcissist, of course, wouldn't ask the question because the aware narcissist already knows. And so what can happen is you might get an unaware narcissist that is called a narcissist by somebody, and then they go off to somebody else and they say, do you think I'm a narcissist? I've been wondering about this. Tom said he thought that I was a narcissist. They don't genuinely believe that they're a narcissist. What they're doing is they are reacting to the threat to control that was posed by Tom suggesting that person's a narcissist and then asserting control indirectly over Tom by seeking the opinion of Brenda. And so Brenda then says, no, 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 you're not a narcissist. You're lovely, really kind. Ah, thanks. And that gives the narcissist a reassurance, which then nullifies the threat to control that was posed by Tom's suggestion that that individual is a narcissist. So they don't actually seriously query it. The narcissism says, you've been accused of it. That threatens the control. Remember, this is going on in the unconscious mind of the narcissist. Now go and approach somebody else and get their confirmation that you're not one, because then that will not only enable you to assert control over that individual, but enable you to assert control over Tom indirectly because of the creation of an alternative environment of control. Because we are created in that lack of control environment, we are hypersensitive to the issue of control. And so there'll be things that you say and do when you're near a narcissist, which you don't think offends the notion of control at all. You won't even see it, but it will, because when it's viewed through our lens of narcissism, it does threaten our, nature, our, our sense of control. And that's why you may find yourself in a situation with somebody and you think, I, I didn't... I didn't do anything and he immediately erupted, shouting and screaming at me. I don't even know what I was meant to have done. And what you've done is you've probably failed to do something, but not realized it. And that failure has wounded the narcissist, threatening his sense of control. So his narcissism in his unconscious has gone red alert. This appliance has threatened control. We must now motivate the narcissist to take steps to assert control over that person by losing their temper. We ignite the fury, the narcissist lashes out, and the person goes, sorry, sorry, so, sorry, I, I didn't mean to upset you. And when they do that, they signal that they're under control and they're giving fuel. Thus, the threat to control has been nullified and all is well in that moment. Oh my gosh. I don't, I'm a bit, I'm a bit triggered by what you've said because I have had an experience where somebody asked me if they were a narcissist and I had to comfort mm -hmm. them. So thanks for that. <laughs> thanks You're for welcome. That. Um, I was just, I want to know, um, why did you create your YouTube channel and how can, because it's mostly women that will listen to this, but how can women benefit by seeking a consultation with you? Because I feel like I would seek like five or six consultations for five mm -hmm. or six people in my life that I would like some, mm -hmm. some expertise mm -hmm. on. So what will people benefit by seeking your advice? I know my kind inside out. I'm self-aware. I know the way that I function and operate. And I've spent years interacting with my own kind. They're in my family. I've had sexual relationships with narcissists. I don't take them as uh, a girlfriend or wife, but as say a friend with benefits or a side piece or a mistress um i've worked with them i have interacted with them through what i do professionally and so not only have i spent a lot of time in and around my kind but because of having a huge intellectual curiosity and a thirst for knowledge i've studied the way that my kind operate also in terms of the unaware ones and have accumulated this vast repository of information, which I share, primarily because I'm creating a legacy. And people often ask me, okay, so you're a narcissistic psychopath, why on earth are you helping people? Well, actually, many narcissistic people help individuals, because what does that enable us to do? Assert control over you, draw fuel from you, generates a facade, which is a residual benefit, we might get paid for helping people. There's another residual benefit. We might become famous off the back of it. There's another residual benefit. What people benefit from me, the consult, is this is access, this massive amount of information that I have, and my ability to explain it in a clear manner to help people understand 
so that when they come and say, these are my circumstances, am I dealing with a narcissist? I will be able to analyze that information and give them a definitive answer and explain why they are dealing with a narcissist. I can then explain to them what they need to be, what they ought to do next and how they can achieve it in terms of protecting themselves. And I'll address a whole host of questions. Why is it you feel compelled to keep engaging with the narcissist? Why won't the narcissist stay away? How can I make the narcissist stay away? Why do I think to myself, I know I shouldn't be with this person, but I still want to be. What's all that about? And there are hundreds of questions that I answer, utilizing my expertise, which is delivered in a way that people understand. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I deliver what I am and understanding my kind and also our victims as well and understanding the nature of that dynamic in an easy to understand way that's applicable to the experiences that you have. So for example, when you read about the concept of ghosting, that is invariably a narcissistic manipulation that's given an alternative title, which makes it seem less harmful than it actually is, that people don't realize that they're dealing with a narcissist and the issues that that's associated with it, that the concept of ghosting is just sort of seen as one of the hazards of dating. Well, actually, it invariably signals that you're dealing with a narcissist, and that's problematic for you for a variety of reasons. But people don't see it. They talk about the concept of zombieing, people coming back almost from the dead. Again, it's a euphemistic title. I remember a few years ago, I spent an afternoon looking around on the internet at people giving advice about relationships on these so these sites of so-called love doctors and relationship gurus. And time after time after time, I saw people coming with honest queries describing precisely the dynamic of being caught by a narcissist. And these so-called experts missed it time after time. And they would trot out complete nonsense, such as you need to uh, back off a little and they will come to you. Wrong answer. Or you need to give that person more and more love. Smother them with the love and that will get through to them. Wrong answer. Sit down and discuss what the problems are and see if you can reach an accommodation with them. Wrong answer. It's well-intentioned, the answers, but they're wrong. None of those things will work with our kind. And we are far more prevalent than people realize, but there is a raft of information that's out there which is incorrect. Most dating and relationship issues where it's repeatedly difficult, you'll be involving a narcissist. Not every time, of course, but most of the time. So if you met a chap, and you had a couple of successful dates, and then he vanished. He might be a narcissist, but it could be the case that something urgent has happened in his life, and that gains his priority, and you will low down the pecking order. And whilst it's rather rude that he didn't contact you to say, sorry, I'm not going to be around, it may well be that his failure to get in touch with you is occasioned by something else. So in those circumstances, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're dealing with a narcissist. It could be something else. But if you're dealing with an individual who you meet, asks a lot of questions about you, has a date, and then immediately wants you to see you the next night, and then wants to see you the night after that, and starts bad-mouthing their ex, saying that she was a nutcase and a psycho, flattering you excessively, complimenting you in a way whereby you think, well, I know I'm, I'm, not, I'm not bad-looking and I'm a reasonable catch, but come on, I'm no supermodel. This person's going over the top. And then after all of that, they suddenly vanish without explanation. And then two weeks later, reappear and carry on as if nothing had happened. You're dealing with a narcissist because there's so many red flags there. The exhibition of a sense of entitlement, namely to treat you as an object. The desire to put you under control by flattering you and complimenting you, what is known seen as love bombing. The absence of boundary recognition. When you start, interacting in a healthy relationship, it should work something like this. You go on a date, you enjoy yourselves. Then afterwards, he says to you, I really enjoyed that. Um, thanks very much. I hope we can do it again. And the next day, exhibiting courtesy and emotional empathy, sends you a text saying, really enjoyed last night. Would you like to go out on another occasion? You reply, I'd love to. He responds, that's great. I'm away this weekend, but how about doing something next weekend? 
I'll give you a call on Thursday and we'll make some arrangements. Does that sound good to you? You reply, yes, look forward to it. And then you don't hear anything. That's because he has a life, a job, maybe family, friends, hobbies. So have you. People then fall into the mistake of thinking, oh, he's not keen. He's not being in touch. No, actually, that individual is recognizing healthy boundaries. They've said that they're going to get in touch with you. And then comes the following Thursday, you get a call. Hi, how's your week been? Bit of a chat. How do you fancy going out to this new Mexican restaurant on Saturday night? Yeah, that sounds really good. I've heard about that. I'd like to go. What time sounds you? 7.30? Great. Shall I meet you there or pick you up? No, I'll meet you there. Fantastic. I'll make the reservation and I'll see you there at 7.30. And then as courtesy at six o'clock on the Saturday, he sends you a text saying, just making sure you're okay for tonight. Yeah, looking forward to it. See you later. But instead, the individual that keeps bombarding you with text messages and wanting to see you and wanting to see you and causing you to change arrangements that you've adhered to for quite some time in order to spend time with this individual who talks to you for three, four hours on the telephone each night. People think, oh, it's wonderful. I've met my soulmate. He's really into me. She's really interesting. We've got so much in common. But the red flags are fluttering left, right, and center. That person is asserting control over you. They're likely mirroring you. They are drawing fuel from you. They are manipulating you in a benign fashion by complimenting you, exhibiting false compassion, exhibiting a false interest in the things that you like, monopolizing your time. It isn't, it isn't an appropriate response with somebody you've just met to immediately spend lots of time with them. But people who are victims of narcissists fall for that because one, they invariably don't know what a healthy relationship looks like because they've been raised by narcissists and may well have had relationship after relationship with narcissists. Secondly, they're likely addicted to narcissists, which creates something that's called emotional thinking. And this emotional thinking blinds you. It basically makes you drunk to what's going on, that you don't see logically, hang on a second, this person isn't recognizing boundaries and they are occupying too much of my time and flattering me unnecessarily. I don't like this. I'm going to back off. Instead, it causes you to think, okay, he's texting me a lot, but it's really sweet and he's really funny. Or, yeah, I, I guess he's wanting to see quite a bit of me, but why not? He's really exciting and fun, you know, and we wanted to have sex on the first date. Well, you know, that's okay. And it was really good. So I'm down with that. It cons you into euphemizing the behaviors and thinking that there's nothing problematic about them. And people become blinded. And what then happens is, their addiction creates this emotional thinking which blinds them to what they're dealing with. They miss the red flags or they might see them but don't take any notice of them. And then they spend more and more time with the narcissist which feeds their addiction, which makes their emotional thinking even stronger. And they are completely oblivious. And a friend could say to them, this guy you're seeing, I think there's something a bit not healthy about it. What do you mean? He wants to spend all of the time with you. He speaks to you three or four hours every night. He stopped you hanging out with us because he wanted to spend time with you. He's bought you four gifts in two weeks, but it's not your birthday and it's not Christmas. And the victim, not knowing the victim, just goes, oh, it's just being nice. You know, I mentioned that I like this particular art, so he's really sweet and he went and bought me that picture. And we talk lots because we've got so much in common and they can't see what's going on. And nobody sees us the first time because as a combination of the way that we fit in and the victim's own emotional thinking, they completely don't see what's going on. Most people don't know about narcissism. And even if they do, uh, they don't necessarily apply it. And even if they think there's something not quite right, they tend to dismiss it because their emotional thinking causes them to do it. And so the dating world Sorry. is a perilous one. Um, for individuals, and particularly so because of online dating. Online dating is shark-infested waters, and it's absolutely perfect environment for our kind to ensnare people. How can you um, spot other narcissists? Like, I find that super interesting that you said you can tell your own kind. And what type of victims are you looking for on dating websites can you tell when someone has like high empathetic traits mm -hmm. and I also want to know why I see a lot of um 
people with borderline personality hooking up with narcissists, how do they spot each other? How can they weed each other out? Especially, you know, when on online dating, like what do profiles, what's the giveaway for you? What's a red flag that instantly, you know, I can abuse this person? With an individual that presents that one can see as, empath as uh, empathic, it'd be things, for instance, putting pictures up that shows this person has an interest in animals. That generally denotes, for instance, empathic traits. Um, having particular interests also exhibit that where they're dealing with other people. Now, remember, a narcissist can also have an interest in animals. And what, what one looks for is a range of behaviours that support the empathic behaviours. So also, it's an absence of certain things. So the individual that only puts up two or three pictures is more likely to be empathic than narcissistic. The individual that in their profile, it's fairly standard, it's fairly middle of the road, more likely to be empathic than a narcissist. So it's not only a combination of identifying the empathic traits which stand out, but also I recognize the traits that demonstrate that that individual's a narcissist. And therefore, whilst I can ensnare a narcissist quite readily, and a narcissist, of course, can be controlled by me and will give me fuel and character traits and residual benefits, ultimately, I would never choose one to be what I call the intimate partner primary source, i.e. girlfriend, spouse, partner, cohab, because you're dealing with somebody that doesn't have an addiction to the narcissist. And therefore, there would ultimately be control issues. And therefore, the empath caters to the prime aims far more satisfactorily than a narcissist. Hence, why the narcissist instinctively or calculatedly targets an empathic individual. And look for certain things like charity work, volunteering work. Those are also likely indicators as well. Um, mention about family is also another likely indicator. And you can see such things as uh, what people perhaps might post if it moves to social media to see what's on their feed. So there's also potential for the use of vulnerability. If there's somebody that posts, for instance, really missing you, Dad, and there are considered posts about love, not emblazing their social media uh, feed with, oh, Dad, I miss you, I can't deal without you, and wailing and gnashing their teeth about it, that's more likely a narcissist. But the occasional reference on an anniversary uh, or an occasion to missing their father, that suggests empath and the vulnerability because that individual has lost the parent. And therefore, that's something that could be exploited. An individual, perhaps, who talks a lot about the fact that they're staying at home and reading, that shows that they might not have an extensive social group. And therefore, they would welcome the attention from somebody, i.e. a savvy narcissist that comes along and picks up on that and gives them the attention that they would like not because they are a narcissist, but because people like to interact with other individuals, human beings and social creatures. So there's a whole raft of indicators that denote that somebody's empathic and also that somebody's narcissistic. And my antennae basically identify that through a combination of instincts and calculated observation to enable me to make an assessment about that individual. You mentioned about borderlines. Now, borderlines bulk of them are actually narcissists but described incorrectly with borderline personality disorder that comes within cluster b there are some people who've been diagnosed with borderline who actually have post-traumatic stress disorder and they've been misdiagnosed but many individuals that are described as borderlines are actually narcissists and it's as a consequence of a gender bias most borderlines are diagnosed, most of the individuals who are diagnosed borderlines are labeled as such and are female. The reason is, is that the traditional diagnosis in the DSM of a narcissist caters basically for your kind of alpha male who eats what he kills, who boasts and brags and looks at himself in the mirror, flexing his guns while banging a prostitute a la Patrick Bateman and is uh, bold and brash and bragging all of those types of things. And that's just one style of narcissist. And if you say that somebody's a narcissist, it's stigmatic. And society prefers to see women as empathic, nurturing, motherly. And so if the powers that be 
kept labeling all of these women as narcissists, it would be problematic within uh, the system. So instead, they basically created narcissist light, which is borderline personality disorder because it doesn't have the same stigma. But you talk to some people who, who say, oh, I was involved with what they believe was borderline. And they'll often say it was absolute hell. And the reason is you're dealing with a narcissist. Borderlines are said to fear abandonment and narcissists fear damage to self-esteem. But those are two branches off the same tree. They're threats to control. If you leave a person, you threaten their control. If you say to them, you're not as good as you think you are, damaging their self-esteem, it's a threat to control. The branches lead to the same outcome. Also, many borderlines say, I can't help it. I know I do bad things, but it's my borderline. I'm a borderline. That's what I call a mid-range narcissist. They recognize that they do something wrong, but it's not their fault. They blame it on something else. And it's a very subtle form of blame shifting. I know that I lash out at you, and I know I say hateful things, and I'm really sorry, but I can't help it, you see. I'm a borderline. Ah, so you know that you do something that hurts other people. Mm -hmm. Well, why don't you stop doing it? I can't. I'm a borderline. Ah, so you're abrogating accountability, which is an indicator of narcissism, and you're blaming it and attributing it to something else, blame shifting, which is a narcissistic manipulation. If you genuinely had emotional empathy and you knew that you'd hurt somebody, you would show genuine contrition for that. And most importantly of all, you wouldn't repeat the behavior for a very long time. Empathic people aren't saints. They make mistakes. They hurt people but as a consequence of an external stressor. So if you're being repeatedly abused, there'll come a point where you may well lash out and fight back and often behave in a way that a narcissist would. You might start giving that individual silent treatments, but you only did it because you've been sustained your suffering, sustained abuse. Your emotional empathy has been eroded by this external stressor, causing your narcissistic traits to come to the fore so that you lash out through pride or anger or argumentativeness, or vanity, for example. You don't do it as an automatic response in all situations. Your emotional empathy ordinarily causes you to behave. And when you do make a mistake, you apologize. And most importantly of all, and this is the main factor, is you don't do it again, because your emotional empathy says, that's wrong, I mustn't treat people that way. But the borderline keeps on doing it and doing it and doing it, even though they know that they're hurting people. And that's because they won't accept responsibility for their behavior. They attribute it to something else. And because it's part of what they are, it sounds like they're saying, oh, I'm wholly accountable for my behavior because it's the fact that it's my borderline that's causing it. No, what they're actually doing, that's a narcissist who's, un who's unaware. And their narcissism, is making a very subtle distinction and saying, it's not the narcissist's fault, it's this thing called borderline. Those are two separate people, really. And so the narcissist isn't his fault because he can blame it on it. It's in the same way, the individual who, who gets drunk and he comes home and he's verbally abusive to his wife and the next morning she sticks him in the doghouse. She says, do you know how you carried on last night? You were an absolute arsehole. And he goes, and it's coming back to him and he's there with his sore head. I, he realizes, yeah, I was bang out of order. I'm really, really sorry. I, I drank too much. I was a complete cock. What does he then do? He, he makes sure, at least for a good solid period of time, he doesn't go and get arsehole. So he doesn't behave like that. He takes accountability for his mistake. He doesn't repeat it, and he exhibits emotional empathy. The only reason that he was unpleasant to his wife was that the drink, an external stressor, caused his emotional empathy to erode, so he acted unpleasant towards her. Thereafter, he realizes, what is it that makes me unpleasant? Drinking too much alcohol. Right, I'll show accountability by reducing my alcohol intake. That's his emotional empathy for his wife being exhibited. But the individual who says, oh, I'm really sorry, darling. I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't have spoke to you like that. Please, please, please forgive me. I won't do it again. And then he goes down the dog and duck on the following Saturday, gets several sheets to the wind, and he comes back and does it again. And then he does it again. And then he does it again. That's a narcissist who just uses the excuse of being drunk to justify his bad behavior. 
but he doesn't take any responsibility for it. And he doesn't show any emotional empathy because he keeps engaging in a habitual pattern of abusive behavior towards his wife. I see. So why do narcissists frequent dating apps? Is, is there a large majority of narcissists on dating apps? Why are they so drawn to it? And what because it's easy, because it's, <clears throat> because it's a very easy environment within which to operate. Okay, so a narcissist could go to a bar and there's a number of people in there and that provides him with a fairly fertile environment. But he's got to get off his backside, get dressed, slap on the cologne, etc., make an effort. Well, that requires energy. And narcissism operates in a way to try and preserve our energy, our energy output as much as possible. Because the need for control is near constant. We don't need it when we're unconscious, but the rest of the time that we do. So it's a little bit like you don't know. You're driving a car. And you're not sure just how far your journey should be and whether this petrol station is going to appear. So you need to drive the car as conservatively as possible to preserve the petrol that you've got, not drive, you know, accelerating and braking suddenly, but moving in a steady way to conserve the fuel that you've got. So the narcissism operates in the same way, that it looks to conserve our energy. So anything that enables us to get those prime aims in the easiest way possible our narcissism gravitates towards. And dating sites enable the narcissist to achieve the prime aims with a minimum of output. The narcissist can stay at home swiping on his phone or is on his computer. He can have several fishing lines in the lake at once. There are, there's a plethora of individuals that he can be interacting with. And he can use the same pickup line, the same observations on each of those individuals, and they don't know about it. They might think, well, you're bound to be speaking to other people. This is a dating site that happens, but you don't know for certain. Moreover, the narcissist can pretend to be whatever he wants to be. If you meet that narcissist in the bar, you know how tall he is. You know how fat or thin he is. You know how he dresses. You see how he moves, what he smells like, what he sounds like. So you have a reasonable representation already of what this person is. Online, the narcissist could put photos up using somebody else. He could claim to be a commercial airline pilot, but he's not. Now, unless you happen to be a commercial airline pilot and you can ask the savvy questions, most people will just accept that at face value. And of course, utilizing Mr. Google, the narcissist can throw a few tidbits in there to make it look like. You see that quite often with these fraudsters that are narcissists that claim to be in the military. And they regularly, they go so far as to get a uniform and wander around in it. But similarly, they can sit at home pretending to be something else. And then if that one doesn't work, easy, I just switch to the next one. And if that one doesn't work, just move to the next one. And there's this ready environment of individuals. And so some narcissists could just sit there repeatedly interacting with these individuals, taking them to the telephone, let's swap numbers, send me some pics, having a conversation. Still, you don't know precisely who you're talking to. Some narcissists, of course, do show who they are because those are the particularly somatic and elite narcissists who are attractive. So they, there's lots of pictures of them and it is them they want to show that off our prey is we present all manner of different appearances and an online environment is manna from heaven for us because it enables us either to have access to a wide range of people from all around the globe and a huge reach through the internet and actually showing us as we are or the narcissist can portray themselves as something completely different in order to draw people in and so it's a, it allows huge reach it's convenient, it's fast, and it allows that chameleon-like behavior to the most extreme. So it's a very fertile environment. And I repeatedly advise my clients, stay away from dating sites. Dating sites are about one thing and one thing only, money. A number of times that people come to me and ask me to assess whether with a narcissist, and the opening question is, where did you meet this person? And I would say, 
50% of the time, the answer comes back. I met them on an online dating site. They are absolute hunting grounds for us. And so the problem that you have is that you're having to negotiate those waters where if you're an empath, lots of narcissists will be homing in on you. And even if you, don't, you manage to avoid being ensnared by a narcissist, you then have to run the gauntlet of the normals. Now, normals are the largest group on the planet. These people have some narcissistic traits and some empathic traits, and they'll have lots of emotional empathy for a small group of people around them, their children, their parents, some friends, some colleagues. But you're a stranger on the internet. They don't have any emotional empathy for you because they don't know you. So what happens is with these normals, they just go on there for a bit of flirtatious fun, maybe to try and get some nudes, and then they disappear. And you think that you're striking up a nice rapport with somebody, and then they just vanish. Why? Because although they're not a narcissist, they don't have any emotional empathy for you because you're a stranger. That's why some of the trolls that you get on the internet, some are narcissists, others are normals, who just think it's fun to sit there and insult people because they've got, they don't know you. They wouldn't do it to your face because if you're sat next to them, they would know you and th therefore they'd have emotional empathy for you. But through the anonymity of the internet, they engage in that behavior. So first of all, in online dating, you have the problem that it's festooned with narcissists. Then if you avoid those, you may well have the time wasters, which are the normals. And then even then, if you manage to meet somebody decent, you have this problem. You have gone there specifically looking for romance. And so when you then go and meet that person, having exchanged some messages and perhaps had a couple of telephone conversations, yours and their expectation is already set pretty high. We get along. They seem really nice. I like what they look like in their photographs. I'm really looking forward to this date. Romance is on the cards. And then you get there and you realize, hmm, she looks a bit older than she did in the photographs. No matter. But you might also think, actually, he has this strange habit of... Um, making a clicking noise when he talks. I hadn't picked up on that from just photographs and text messages. Oh, I'm a bit disappointed now. Or he moves slightly awkwardly. He's a bit clumsy. Of course, I didn't pick up on that. And so the problem is, is that not only are you not getting an accurate representation of that person in an online environment, not because they're deceiving you, but it's not a natural way to meet somebody. But moreover, that you're going there with raised expectations. So it's festooned with narcissists time-wasting normals, and even then when you find somebody who might not belong to those two groups, your raised expectations may be dashed just by the fact that there is a world of difference between how somebody is, and they're not intentionally misleading you, but there is a difference between how they are in a dating site and how they are normally. Prior to all of this, you met somebody that you worked with. So you invariably knew about them. And you thought, yeah. And often people would say, I didn't fancy him at first, but he grew on me. And you know where that person works. So you know they're telling the truth about the job. And you probably know a bit of background about them because other people have told you about it. And you've seen the way the person behaves. And you know that they're hardworking. And you know that they're polite. And you know what they look like when they move and what they smell like and that they are that height. And they aren't 10 years older than the photograph says. And so that relationship is more likely to develop in a healthy and organic way compared to one where there's dating online. So for a multiplicity of reasons, dating online, forget it. What are the narcissist's love cycles? Devaluation, love bombing, devaluing, discard, and what red flags can women look out for in their relationships when they've just met somebody? When you're talking about a romantic relationship with a narcissist, it invariably has two roots. The first is the traditional route. The narcissist engages in seducing you, so flattering you, complimenting you, wanting to spend a lot of time with you, possibly talks about their ex in a less than favourable manner. And then, having got you under control and seduced you and made you, let's say, the girlfriend, you have what's known as the embedded golden period. So you get the golden period of seduction. Everything's fun and exciting, and it's all great hanky-panky and presents and days out, and cuddling out, watching Netflix and all of that jazz. And then you become the girlfriend, and you're still in the golden period. 
and you have a holiday together and you make plans for the future and you might move in together. Often the narcissist tries to move in with you or gets you to move in very quickly to assert control. There might be talk about having children or a swift pregnancy, swift engagements, swift marriages. Those are all red flags as well. And you get this golden period, which invariably lasts between six to 18 months, sometimes a little less, sometimes a little bit longer. And then you've got, when you become the intimate partner primary source, also known as the girlfriend, the husband, the spouse, co-head partner, you will be devalued because basically we get bored of you. And then when you're devalued, that can take lots of different forms. It might be cheating on you, but you don't realize it's happening. It might be beating you up and raping you. It might be ignoring you, not being supportive, being emotionally distant, putting you down, criticizing you, not wanting to do anything with you. There's lots of different ways. And what you get through this sustained devaluation is invariably the worst treatment. And then you get a respite period where everything's all right again. And you think, oh, we sorted our differences out. And then you get devalued again. And then you get a respite period. And then you get a devaluation. It's the roller coaster that people are familiar with. And then that relationship either goes one of three ways. The victim gets out, they escape. That's the rarest outcome. Or the narcissist disengages. Some people call it discard. I call it disengage. The narcissist disengages where they get rid of the victim. Or neither of those things happened and the relationship goes on until one of the parties dies. And that's the dynamic between a narcissist and an intimate partner primary source. You're seduced, golden period. You're embedded, golden period. You have the sustained devaluation interspersed with respite periods. And then either you escape, you're disengaged from, or that continues until death. Even if you're disengaged from or you've escaped, that doesn't mean it's over because there is a very good chance at a future point that we will come after you again. That's a more detailed topic. The second dynamic that can occur is the shelving dynamic. You don't get to become the intimate partner primary source. You are either an intimate partner secondary source on the shelf or a dirty little secret secondary source on the shelf. So a dirty little secret secondary source on the shelf would be, for instance, the friend with benefits. And so the narcissist gives you a call and fancies, do you fancy hooking up this afternoon? And you meet in a motel to have sex, and then he clears off back to his wife. And you never meet any of his friends. And you never really talk about one another's lives. And you're just used, perhaps quite frequently, often for sex. You might have dinner somewhere, but it's out of the way, so nobody sees you. And quite simply, the narcissist takes you off the shelf, plays with you, and then pops you back on the shelf again. And the narcissist might text you and might call you, but there'll be times where you try and text and call the narcissist and he ignores you or he throws you some comfort crumbs. Be busy at the minute, I'll be in touch. And you are that object. You're a toy from the toy cupboard that the narcissist chooses, spends a bit of time with and then puts back. And the narcissist might have somebody else in a similar role. So he might be married. So he's got an intimate partner, primary source who's in devaluation. And he's cheating and he's got a couple of dirty little secrets on the go. The intimate partner secondary source of a shelf variety is like the dirty little secret, but they have more prominence. So that person, you might be dating. And so the narcissist spends time with you, takes you places, but you never get to the status of a settled relationship to so say boyfriend and girlfriend. And in a way, you might want that, but the narcissist kind of disappears for a while because you've been put on the shelf you've, and people think, oh, I've been ghosted. And then they come back with excuses. Yeah, I got really busy with work. Sorry about that. Anyway, do you fancy going out tonight? And you might meet friends and family, but then nothing solid comes from it. You're always the afterthought. You're often chasing, can we, can we meet up? I'd love to, but I'm playing football this weekend. Then I'm seeing the lads, so maybe next time. And you really are relegated to that secondary position. So you can have that. Or it might be that you are the mistress and you've got a particularly bold narcissist that introduces the mistress to his mates and maybe to even some of the family, even though he's got a girlfriend or a wife or whatever. But again, you're picked up and put down 
in a similar fashion. You don't get to that status of intimate partner primary source. When you're a secondary source, either dirty little secret or intimate partner secondary source of a shelf variety, that dynamic, often you're treated reasonably well. The narcissist doesn't tend to beat you up. It doesn't tend to have screaming matches with you. It can happen, but it's rare. Instead, you get what's known as corrective devaluations, little slaps across the wrist to keep you in line. Maybe the insult here, triangulation with somebody there, occasional silent treatment. The main problem when you're the, the secondary source is you really are an afterthought. You're always wondering, where is the narcissist? Who's he, who's he or she with? What are they doing? Why haven't I heard from them? I'd like more from this relationship. Why isn't it happening? And you're left out in the cold, wondering, waiting. So some people tolerate that, which is a product of them not understanding that they're dealing with a narcissist and their own emotional thinking, capitalizing on their addiction, that they tolerate being treated like that, second best and an afterthought. So those are the two dynamics that you can expect in a romantic relationship with a narcissist or an intimate relationship with a narcissist. The traditional route, seduction, devaluation, escape, disengagement, or it just continues. And then the shelf dynamic being picked up and put down. What is the best way to break up with your kind? Go, don't look back, don't tell us that you're going and ensure that you inst institute a total no contact regime. Block on everything. Better than that, you change your number, you come off social media. Oh my God. There are five there are there are five arenas that you have to stay out of and in consultation because it's very detailed. I take people through what those five arenas are, and I, using my expertise and knowing the way that I think and my kind think, tell you all about the ways that we will try and cause a problem for you, and also the ways that your own addiction will cause a problem for you. It's a little bit like going and saying to a burglar, this is my house. If you were to burgle it, what would you do? And he points out, I do this, I go there. You've got weaknesses here, there, and everywhere. I give you a full health check in terms of, okay, this is, the, this is the lay of the land with the narcissist. These are the things he's likely to do or she's likely to do. These are the steps that you need to take given the status quo at the moment. These are your vulnerabilities. You need to lock those areas down. You need to come off there. You need to change that and take you through the things that you need to do to keep the narcissist away from you, and just as importantly, to keep yourself away from the narcissist. Okay, I've got one more question for you that sounds a bit, I don't know, it's a bit off the cuff, but I want your, your genuine, honest opinion on this before we wrap up. And I okay. want you to also share where people can find you because I have watched, I probably like all of your videos. You've been posting so much the past couple mm -hmm. of weeks and I'm really grateful. Um, but other people need to, to listen to your content because sometimes you word things in a really funny way and I do find myself cracking up. <laughs> it's quite yep. dramatic and you've been blessed with this voice that really draws you in. Um, mm -hmm. All right, let me get to it. The last question is, it's a bit off the cuff, but I just want to know, um, a narcissist more into BDSM than other people with a particular focus on domination? Yes. Most individuals that are involved in BDSM that are dominant are likely to be narcissists. Not all, but again, that's a hunting ground for us because in order to be an effective dom, we treat you as an object. It's the assertion of control over you. There is the provision of fuel as a consequence of your submissive reaction. That there's no emotional empathy. We, don't, we really don't care about you. That enables us to treat you in a particular manner. And so... Many dominants in the BDSM world are narcissists. Not all, but many are. Oh, wow. Damn. Yeah. And one more, one more, one more thing before we wrap this up. Honestly, I was just yeah. thinking, I did write a little article on my blog called My Date with a Sociopath. Went on a okay. date with a guy and I didn't like him. Something was just telling me, like, I don't like this guy. Like, I'm not into mm -hmm. him. Um, I feel like he locked me in his bathroom. I honestly thought I was going to die. And then he suddenly let me out, was laughing about it. Um, yeah. begged to see me, um, wouldn't let me leave his house. And I was like, I'm going to go. I obviously said I would see him. So I lied. Um, and then mm -hmm. I thought, oh, good. He's not messaged me. He messaged me the next morning saying that I stole his watch and he had it on CCTV. 
Um, I actually thought to myself, oh my God, did I? But then it's like, I'm not stupid enough to steal a watch. I don't need to Mm -hmm. prove my innocence to somebody who has made up a blatant lie about me. Obviously there's no proof. The police were never called. He was being really nice to me and accusing me, but is that a narcissist? I did meet him on Hinge. It was a dating app. Well, before I answer that, I'll give you the information about where if people have similar situations and they want some help, you can find my work on my, first of all, my blog, which is called Knowing the Narcissist. You find that at narcsite.com, N-A-R-C-S-I-T-E.com. I have a Facebook page of the same name, an Instagram of the same name, and there's you know, a YouTube channel, which is HG Tudor, Knowing the Narcissist, the Ultra, where there are over a thousand videos which cover all manner of different aspects of the narcissistic dynamic, narcissists, our victims, how you can deal with us, the signs to look for, and analysis of famous people that are narcissists done in an instructive way. There's a lot of entertaining material in there. It's not to make light of this as a serious subject, but rather occasionally a little bit of levity goes a long way. But also I'm a firm advocate of entertaining education that if you are entertained whilst you're learning about all of this, it will stick in your heads for much longer and you'll make better use of it. And as you've identified, I am blessed with this fantastic stentorian voice and a rather keen sense of humour. So a combination of those makes for an excellent listening experience. If you want my bespoke help, and many, many people do, you go to narcsite.com and go in the menu bar and you can utilise the narc detector to find out if you're dealing with a narcissist the empath detector to find out if you're an empath and you can speak to me for either half an hour or an hour and as many sessions as you require and many people talk to more than once where I will give you the concentration of my expertise and enable you to solve the problems, equip you with the tools and achieve freedom. And you can go and look at the testimonials on my site to see how many people are effusive in their praise for my methodology and assistance I'm creating a legacy. It matters to me that you succeed. I love to win. And therefore, if you win, I gain the win also. And that's what motivates me. My work's in rival. You're a fabulous writer. You're a fabulous writer, let me just say. Thank you. And it's part of conveying it so that people understand it. So that's where everybody can find me. Do come along and make use of my services. You will find it enlightening, empowering, and freeing. Now, to deal with your little scenario there, there are a number of red flags. I'd need more information to confirm that you're dealing with a narcissist because I won't make an evaluation on the barest of evidence. What I will say is, is many people say, HG, uh, this chap did this, is he a narcissist? And all I'll say is that's an indicator. It's not determinative on its own. You need to look at a range of behaviours over a period of time. Your situation did show a number of indicators. Locking you in a bathroom showed the assertion of control and absence of emotional empathy. Making light of the scenario thereafter was deflection and also an absence of emotional empathy. The fact that they contacted you thereafter may well have been hoovering, which is a form of assertion of control, and the concept of unconscious ownership of who you are. Also an absence of emotional empathy. He's treated you badly and then just comes back again to connect with you, irrespective of the way that he's dealt with you. That shows no remorse, no conscience. It shows compartmentalization. The occurrence of the activity with you on the previous occasion has been compartmentalized. That's in the past. Back he comes with a fresh set of circumstances. Also shows objectification and the way that he regarded you. The accusation about the theft is an assertion of control, the revision of history, the telling of a lie, and is done to provoke you. So there are a number of indicators in there. So if you were to put him through the narc detector, there's a very good chance that he would come out as a narcissist. I can't say for certain because I've only got that bare example. For instance, it might be that there was an external stressor causing him over that short period of time to behave in that reprehensible manner. I'll give you a quick example. You walk in a shop, you see a lady, she's berating the shop assistant. She's trying to climb over the counter and grab money out of the till. What are you dealing with there? Is that a self-entitled narcissist? There's a certain control over the shopkeeper by threat of physical violence. She's seeing a sense of entitlement to take his hard-earned money. She's verbally abusive, which is a form of manipulation. She's showing a lack of emotional empathy and failure to recognise boundaries. She could be a narcissist. Or is it a lady who recently lost her job? Her husband is very, very ill and can't work. She's got four children to feed. 
and she snapped and she's at the end of the tether. And those circumstances have reduced her emotional empathy to cause her to behave in a way that's like a narcissist. So in that snapshot, it could be one or the other. And that's why we always need more information to make evaluation. It's very important to emphasize that because as you alluded to earlier on in the conversation, the word narcissist gets bandied around a lot. And yeah. it's important that more people are aware of it. And so they should do because there's far more of us than people realize. But the application of the term narcissist needs to be done after careful consideration of pertinent evidence from a reliable source seen over a period of time. Well, thank you very, very much. That definitely answers the question. Obviously, I didn't plan on seeing him again because I felt like he was very off key. He was very weird. That would strike me as sensible response. But the the accusation, I mean, he didn't block me or anything. He wanted me to come and meet him. He said he would give me a reward. I'm not, yeah. I'm just, I'm, I'm a bit stupid to steal. I'm more likely to eat all of your food. Um, no, noted. Your I'll, I'll, to, I'll, put, an, I'll put, put an order into Waitrose this moment. <laughs> than to, you know, steal a watch. But, you know, it yeah. was, it was, it was a bit weird and I, I gave him my email address my number I said tell the police to come and talk to me but then I realized mm -hmm. after five minutes there probably was no watch and he was just mad because I refused to meet up with him again um so yeah very creepy I will never be going to somebody's house um mm. on a first date and I'm also not no. using dating apps so good good there's plenty of ways I appreciate Many people have complained to me saying, well, HG, what are we meant to do, particularly during the lockdown? And my answer to that is, wait. Oh. Wait until the lockdown lifts and meet people in a more natural environment. Yeah. Waiting a, a year or so to find romance is, is only a small sacrifice in the, in the scheme of avoiding being abused for several years, isn't it? That's very, very, very true. I honestly, genuinely appreciate you taking the time out to speak to me today. You're very I'm welcome. Really being so eager to speak with you. It's been like a couple of months. Thank you for listening. Please tune in next week, Monday, for a new guest and a new exciting topic. Feel free to check out more of my content at www.ebbyonline.com.